Welcome to this episode of Redefining Rivalries. Redefining Rivalries. Redefining Rivalries. Sponsored generated content for Showtime. Produced by Wall Street Journal Custom Studios, a unit of the Wall Street Journal Advertising Department. Coming up, we dive into the world of sports and take a look at how rivalries turbocharge the field of play. From the psychological to the physiological, Going up against our biggest competitors can bring out the extreme in athletes, teams, and even fans. In the hit Showtime series, Billions, the heated passion of rivalry is on full display. The show centers on the intense antagonistic relationship between adversaries Bobby Axelrod, played by Damian Lewis, a successful but ethically challenged hedge fund mogul. When an enemy's down on the field, you gotta finish him. And Chuck Rhodes, played by Paul Giamatti. An ambitious but ethically challenged U.S. attorney. Never give in. Never yield to the enemy. Billions returns February 19th with new episodes Sunday nights at 10, 9 central on Showtime. Axelrod and Rhodes would stop at nothing to see the other fail. And that's an all too familiar sight for many a sports fan. Nothing compares to the gut-wrenching intensity of a sports rivalry. Each athlete or team made greater by having that one opponent they have to dig deep down mentally to beat. But competing against a rival doesn't just get in your head, it can take over your entire body. In the book, This Is Your Brain on Sports, The Science of Underdogs, The Value of Rivalry, and What We Can Learn from the T-Shirt Canon, John Wertheim, Executive Editor for Sports Illustrated, and Sam Summers, Associate Professor of Psychology at Tufts University, dig deep into sports rivalries and just what they do to your brain and your body. Sports are known for their rivalries. So what have the two of you learned about the psychology of rivalry by your focus on sports? Sam, let's start with you. Well, it's interesting. Some of what you'd predict goes into being uh, to making a rivalry. Things like geographic proximity, um, the idea that you're in competition with someone. So in the sports world, the teams that are in your division, that you're battling them you know, for the title or for the playoff spot, those are more likely to be your rivals. Uh, a lot of it has to do with similarity, that we are just much more likely to be these fierce arch rivals with people, with teams with universities that are very similar to us, that at some level, even though we think of rivals as being these polar opposites, it's quite often the the two schools, the, the two teams, the two towns that are really quite similar who wind up being the strongest of rivals. Sam's right. We sort of have this, uh, the opposites attract is what we say in romance and in sports, we say styles make fights. But really, there is this, this huge overlap. It's not necessarily a study in contrast. There's geographic proximity. You know, it's, it's Washington and Oregon, not Washington and Arkansas. There's a certain overlap in the type of institution, the type of team, the type of school. It's Harvard, Yale. It's Williams, Amherst. I mean, the great irony is that the students that went to Williams could just as easily have gone to Amherst. The kids in the service that went to Air Force could just as easily have gone to to Army or Navy. And I I also think that rivalry needs some sort of fluctuating results. There, There has to be this sort of thrust and parry it's not a rivalry if, if Duke has beaten North Carolina 20 times in a row. Rivalry comes from the Latin word for river, this idea of something flowing in the same direction. So your findings of similarity seem to track. Why are we rivals with people who are like us then? 
Why do we want to, in effect, beat ourselves? There is, uh, at certainly at, at, at some level, a sense in which we define ourselves in terms of those who are around us, that it's hard to know how you're doing in life without uh, understanding how everyone else is doing. When I, you know, I'm a college professor, when I give back an exam to my students, the first question they all want to know is, well, what was the average? What was the average? And, and some of that is because they want to know how they've done. And some of that is because they want to know and feel good about themselves because at least they did better than that guy in the front row. But, you know, there is this motivation we have to uh, to, to uh, evaluate ourselves in terms of what's going on around us. And, and rivals, again, they're these similar others. They're natural comparison points. They are the... The people and the teams for which we get ourselves up the most, and it becomes an important part of our self-definition. How do we see ourselves? Well, in large part, it depends on what we're comparing ourselves to, and those rivals are the critical comparison points for a lot of us. As a sports writer, I mean, one thing that our research really um, impressed upon me is that all games are not equal. And we talk about coaches in the locker room speech saying you treat every opponent the same, and every game matters the same, and a win is a win. But really, from the perspective of the athlete, the opposition really does matter. And everything from, I mean, psychologically, but even physiologically, what goes on in an athlete's body when you're Serena Williams playing against your rival Maria Sharapova, that is a much different experience than an indiscriminate opponent. What does happen to an athlete mentally and physically when they play a rival? Yeah, we know uh, from the standpoint of the people on, on the field or on the ice or on the pitch or wherever we're playing that, that when you're in these rivalry games, these games against arch rivals, that physiological sensors uh, are showing that the body's actually working harder, that when we are competing against the arch rivals, uh, you see an increased work rate, for example, among professional soccer players, measuring how far they're running over the course of a game, or even elevated testosterone in, in, in a couple of studies before the game uh, among soccer players, again, when it's the arch rivals, when you're playing your rival and not just any run-of-the-mill opponent. Uh, and it's much the same uh, as, as a fan watching these games that are physiological or psychological reaction. The coaches, too. You see coaches taking more risks, being more likely to go for it on fourth down in the rivalry game than perhaps in another game where they're more likely to just punt. And so you see a very different way of thinking and even our, our bodily reaction to the scenario when it's one of these arch rivals that's, that's across the field from us. We, we came across one study in Australia where this was Australian rules football. And even levels of saliva in the athletes were different when they played their rival versus a, a run-of-the-mill opponent. But what you come to realize is that a win is a win, obviously, but from the perspective of the athlete in performance, there's a much different experience when it's a rival opposition than, than another. I think, Sam, you coined this, that it's, I think you said it's it's competition any day of the week, but against rivalry, it's it's this turbo competition. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's the ramping up. Again, any, any competition, it gets the, the, the blood boiling, the juice is flowing, but the, the rivalry thing seems to turbocharge everything. As we know, some of the most heated rivalries aren't even between athletes and teams, but fans, New York and Boston, Auburn and Alabama. Why do people who aren't even playing the game care so much? We human beings have the tendency to uh, to bask in reflected glory, uh, is the phrase that psychologists like to use. That it's the reason you hear someone talking about, you know, the, the friend of a friend of a roommate's girlfriend's ex-boss's niece is someone famous, and that somehow reflects on you. Moody rolls right. Throws it deep. Caught by Boston College. It's a touchdown. 
I'll tell you, I was sitting at a TGI Fridays when Doug Flutie threw that Hail Mary, and somehow the fact that I was watching it live, I feel like gives me some sort of currency. I wasn't at the game, uh, but I watched that Kozar Flutie game, and hey, I'll tell you exactly where I was, and somehow that, to me, is part of my, as a sports fan, I experienced a moment, I owned it, I was there, and when it's your team and it's against a rival, there is this self-esteem boost. The research on fandom that we came across, I thought, was really fascinating, that whether your team wins or loses, they have all sorts of impacts on everything from your ability to do crossword puzzles to the way you see your yourself physically, your physical attractiveness when you self-assess is different the day after your team loses versus wins. So clearly this goes a lot deeper than just this is the team I support and I feel validated when they succeed. This, this fan experience really has all sorts of implications. Let's discuss schadenfreude, the German word about taking pleasure from another's misfortune. Rivalry and competition are a big part of that, right? When someone you usually root against loses, it feels good. Yeah, it's, it's a huge part of being a sports fan that uh, maybe we don't always admit to, or maybe some of us do admit to. There are, again, studies uh, that do brain imaging that show activation in regions of the brain that are associated typically with, with pleasure when the team that you're rooting for, your favorite team, does well. But you know what? You see that same level of activation, sometimes even greater activation, when the team you're rooting against does poorly. So the Yankees fan in the, in the scanner who sees something go poorly for the Red Sox, the, the North Carolina fan who sees something go badly for Duke, that that at some level uh, is just as rewarding, if not more so, for the sports fan. It might be a bit of an unseemly portrait uh, of us as, as, again, human beings and sports fans, but we do, especially in that domain and presumably in others like politics and business. But sticking to sports for now, we do take pleasure in the missteps of the teams that we're rooting against. We do show signs even at the neurological level uh, uh, of the schadenfreude idea. The flip side of that is another fabulous word, Glückschmerz, which is feeling bad in response to other people's fortune. A slow grounder to third, the throw, the Cubs win the World Series! You can see that translate in the sports world. You can, I, I imagine, I can only imagine that the vast majority of America was quite happy to see the Cubs win the World Series this year. But I got to believe that there are some fans in St. Louis who still didn't take that much pleasure in that victory. The rival Cardinals fans insisting that if it's not us, why does it have to be them? A sentiment that, frankly, is hard to get over. And when you, again, see someone succeed in a domain that's important to you and it's not you, that can be something that's both unpleasant as well as uncomfortable if it makes it feel like, well, this is never going to happen for us. Now, no one's going to pity the poor Cardinals fan compared to the Cubs fan, but you can see how this would play itself out uh, on somewhat of a, of a regular basis in the sports world. And otherwise, that success in a domain that you care about when it's someone else's success can actually be painful. In sports, this is strictly anecdotal, but in sports, you see that all the time. That when the Boston Red Sox finally killed their curse and, and won the World Series, Cubs fans said, you know what, it, it's our turn. When when Serena Williams does well in tennis, I think a lot of other players say, well, she's Serena Williams, once in a generation player. When Angelie Kerber, um, <laughs> a, a less gifted player, does well, I think a lot of the competition says, wait a second, why not me? Right, right. So let's go back to the fan a little bit on schadenfreude. And when things cross the line, when fans become violent, when they act out, we all know about the Dodgers-Giants situation in the opening day of the 2011 baseball season when someone was nearly beaten to death. Los Angeles, 911. What's your emergency? Oh, uh, yeah, this guy was, uh, uh, he was struck by a fist to the head, uh, and then he hit the ground. Um, and I think uh, he also hit his head on the ground. He's still unconscious. What happens to fans when they lose control because of rivalry? 
and because of sports. What's the psychology of that, Sam? The research shows that, that, again, people do tend to take pleasure in the failures of their rivals and those same individuals who are showing the greatest activation in areas of the brain associated with, with pleasure when their rivals do poorly, those are also individuals who harbor and report harboring the most aggressive tendencies uh, towards outgroup members. And so you take this rivalry, you add things like alcohol and a crowd and the frustration of traffic, and you throw this all together and it can be a pretty deadly mix. I mean, there is a reason why I think we talk about in, in the book um, veteran stadium in, in Philadelphia having a, a holding cell, a detention cell at some point in the basement. And that's not just an indictment of the city of Philadelphia, though some might want it to be, but rather a suggestion that this can be quite the, the flammable mix when you take, again, the pleasure in the failures of others, the aggressive tendencies that, that we sometimes have towards out-groups versus in-groups and throw us all in the mix. There is a, there is a fine line where, whereas rivalry can indeed, even on the playing field, motivate people to, tr to work harder, to, to have elevated testosterone rate, and cortisol, and so forth, it can also motivate them to be more aggressive. You see more red cards in rivalry soccer games. You see more personal fouls in college football rivalry games. And so you see people crossing lines on the field, but certainly in the stands as well. We talked in the book at another point about the state of arousal and how when we're aroused, it's sexual arousal, but it's also it's anger, it's competition. When we're in these hot states, when we're in these aroused states, how out of character we tend to act. And rivalry is something that triggers this state of arousal. On some very basic level, it's biology. We're not competing for food or resources or mates per se anymore, but it's evolutionary. It's part of our DNA. We have to beat that guy. We have to be better than you. Somehow it's better for us if we're better than you. Centuries ago, it may have been land and resources and access to waterways. This is all uh, a modern-day pretext. So, after all this, what would the sports world be like without rivalries, John? Uh, I'll tell you a funny story real quick. In, in tennis right now, you have these, these four excellent players, and there's not really this authentic rivalry. And I floated the suggestion, maybe tennis could actually market this. That maybe there's actually some equity to the fact that you don't have to pick sides. It isn't this binary, I like this, I hate that. And I was laughed out of the room. And from tennis executives to my readership when I suggested that, um, people, hey, listen, we, we need rivalry. We need contrasting styles. We don't want parody. We don't want a love in that we absolutely have to have two people going at each other and fans drawing lines and, and picking sides. And uh, it suggested to me that, that rivalry is absolutely essential from the fans' experience, from the sports' experience, certainly, again, from a crass commerce experience, rivalry absolutely essential to sports. Perhaps we've learned something that deep down we already knew. Those hated rivals? We can't live with them, but we certainly can't live without them. Our thanks to John Wertheim and Dr. Sam Summers. Don't miss two rivals who will stop at nothing to take each other down in the hit Showtime series, Billions. Billions returns on February 19th with new episodes, Sunday nights at 10, 9 central, only on Showtime. This has been an episode of the Redefining Rivalries podcast series, a paid program for Showtime, produced by Wall Street Journal Custom Studios, a unit of the Wall Street Journal Advertising Department. Please visit wsj.com slash podcast slash sponsored and sho.com slash billions for other installments in the series. The Wall Street Journal news organization was not involved in the creation of this content. 911 call and sportscast reenacted. For the Redefining Rivalries podcast series, I'm Lauren Tulajan.